Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Thanks very much, Robin. And the Cosmic Shambles team may be coming to a town near you soon as well. We're in Manchester on October 22nd. We're doing a Book Shambles Live with Professor Sophie Scott and Charles Fernhoe and Robin, obviously, and then uh, doing a big launch event for Robin's book on November 1st at King's Place in London. Robin will be live on stage and in conversation with Philip Perry and Stuart Lee, and there'll also be performances from Josie Long and Grace Petrie. Tickets for that are available now. They're 15 quid and include a £3 discount off the book if you buy it on the night and Robin will be signing it there. And there's not many tickets left for that. Uh, Under 40 tickets uh, left for that gig, I believe. So jump on the King's Place or Cosmic Shambles website to get those. And while you're there, why not grab tickets for Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People in December, also at King's Place, December 14, 15, 19 and 20. There will be Robin and Josie and Grace and Adam Rutherford and Helen Chersky and Matt Parker and Joshua Idahan and uh, Dallas Campbell and uh, Katie Steckles and Hannah Fry and lots and lots and lots and lots of other people performing at those charity gigs. So... Grab your tickets for those now. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts and give Book Shambles a five-star rating. Uh, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. If you would like to have us keep making the show, essentially, and get some rewards and perks and extended episodes and stuff there, including an extended version of this very episode, which includes uh, some more salacious stories from Ian Rankin. So let's get to that episode now. With a tiny caveat, as with the other Edinburgh Fringe episodes we've released and still to release, uh, the sound and recording equipment in the Free Fringe venue we did these in was not the greatest, uh, so there might be a little bit of pop and crackle and hiss here and there throughout this episode. For instance, there's a little bit of feedback hum uh, that disappears after the first few minutes, so it shouldn't detract from what is a great conversation between Robin and current number one selling best author this week, Ian Rankin. Oh, we'll talk about that. Have we started? Have we started? No. Yeah, we might as well start. Well, we might as well almost start exactly where you were just talking about a novel. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Uh, This is, we're recording a few of these at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, Lazy Josie Long has decided uh, to stay at home and love her new baby instead. Uh, And so she's not here, so I'm just doing it on my own. And today we are joined by Ian Rankin. (laughs) 
you were just mentioning a, a novel about Samuel Beckett, and I wanted to make because last year I did Brendan Burns does a show all about wrestling uh, with Colt Cabana, and I did that, and I thought I'll tell Colt Cabana quite uh, an interesting, and that was uh, Andre the Giant, who was both an actor in uh, Princess Bride, things like that, and also a wrestler. Uh, I said, "Oh, Colt, you're like this. Uh, you might not know, but uh, Andre the Giant used to be given a lift to school by Samuel Beckett." And then I realised that half of that story and the people in it, a wrestler has no fucking idea what that is. And I thought, I'll explain who Samuel Beckett is. You know, who wrote Waiting for Godot, and that didn't help at all. Not because he's not clever, it's just that Beckett doesn't come that much into the wrestling world, apart from in the scene in uh, They Live, where John Carpenter does an incredibly long fight scene. Anyway, so you, you were just... Let's start he off a, with... He was a boxer, though, Beckett. He wasn't a wrestler. He was a boxer. Oh, no, he didn't. He never did. He only gave him a lift to school. He didn't fight with him as well. Uh, but I think the idea he, of Andre he, the Giant... If you'd said he's like a wrestler, but they actually hit each other re- for real, he might have understood a little bit better. Ian, tell me about this novel, then. So it's a novel about um, Samuel Beckett. It is. It's a novel, and I forget the author's name, which is really embarrassing, uh, but it's called A Country Road, A Tree, and I read it last year, and it's about Beckett's time in France during World War II when he was mostly in the resistance and on the run. Uh, And it's basically setting up um, everything in his life that would lead to him writing uh, Waiting for Godot, which opens with the line A Country Road, A Tree. I mean, that's the description. That's where we are on the stage set. Um, and it's a brilliant book. And even if you don't know Beckett, it's an extraordinary book. If you do know Beckett, it's still an extraordinary book because you go, I didn't know that part of his life. And it is, a, it is fictional, but it, I think it's very closely based on what really happened to him and his relationship at the time with a French woman and then being told, you've got, you've got to get out, you've got to, you've got to run for it. And walking, through, walking along country roads, hiding from the Germans, taking his boots off because his feet were sore. I mean, it's all there. It's brilliant. See, that's what... what but I you thought, don't read fiction. Yeah, so no, I, I do. telling you? No, you yeah, don't. Yeah, I you do. I, I, I read Roadside Picnic recently, uh, which is... Does anyone know? Uh, by Boris and Arkady Stragatsky, which was turned into uh, Stalker. And it's this beautiful uh, novel where it's kind of science fiction. And basically what happened is it, it was a roadside picnic. The aliens came to Earth, but they literally did not give one fuck about us. It was as if they pulled into a lay-by had a picnic and just then left all their junk and then just went off. They didn't even bother looking for us. And the junk has kind of influenced, uh, you know, the, the society. And um, I wanted to ask you about, in fact, talking about Beckett, there is an interesting, the divide... I wish you hadn't brought it up now. The, uh, <laughs> oh, once you bring up Beckett, I drag yeah, it on yeah. for ages because <laughs> it's what he would have wanted. And, uh, but I'm... Uh, what fascinates... Sometimes there are things which are held to be, you know, art house... And immediately they are then sometimes, you know, they're always treated with kid gloves. And I also think that quite often it means that people feel it's not for them. And I think they are with Beckett, I remember going to see a production of Waiting for Godot with uh, Hugo Weaving and Richard Roxburgh by the, I think, Sydney Theatre Company. It was fantastic. But I sat in the audience for 20 minutes and no one laughed. And I don't think it was because they didn't find it funny. It was because they went, I better not laugh. It's Samuel Beckett. And then the bit when they talk about hanging themselves from a tree so they can ejaculate, that broke through to the audience (laughs) and they couldn't hold back laughing then. But that... You know, there's so many divisions in, in literature and art. And, and how yeah. do you feel the way of kind of battling that bit that say, look, if you can read, yeah, yeah, yeah. these things are for everyone. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's true. I mean, when I was at university studying Beckett, it was all very pole-faced. Of course, it was all reading literary texts about Beckett, going to see productions of Beckett, just, you know, talking about them. 
And then I met a guy called John Calder, who in fact died last week, lived in Edinburgh, Calder, John Calder Publishing. He had a very successful publishing house in London that published a lot of this stuff like Last Exit to Brooklyn that nobody else would touch. And he was Beckett's publisher. And he was giving a talk on Beckett and he was in his 80s and he couldn't get up the stairs, but he still gave this talk and no notes. And afterwards we were having a dinner, I think, or drinks. And he, and he said, yeah, he said, I used to often play ping pong all night with Samuel Beckett. And it wasn't a euphemism. It was actually, you know, it, they would play just games of ping pong. And he said he was a cracking, he was a great guy. He was a laugh. He was, you know, and I'm going, wow. And, um, and to name drop further, uh, it made me think about um, uh, uh, um, Pinter, Harold Pinter, who, of course, was heavily influenced by Beckett and would send all his stuff to Beckett for a critique before he ever did anything with it. Had to get the OK, the thumbs up, before he'd take it to the next stage. And I got to know Pinter quite late on in his life and um, at so several meals in Edinburgh with him. And he was a cracking laugh as well. And these guys have got this reputation, this kind of literary, you know, this sort of, it's almost like bulletproof glass. But if you can get behind that to them, they're actually just like everybody else. Well, Beckett seems reading about him where, you know, people would meet him in a bar in France and it was like, I don't want to talk about my work and I don't want to talk about existentialism. I want to have a pint and I want to watch Bjorn Borg playing in Wimbledon. Yeah, Again, yeah. Matt, and, and I love the fact that Pinto, I think one of his last favourite actors was Danny Dyer, that people wouldn't expect, but he loved Danny Dyer. You think of all the kind of roughneck characters in Pinto and he, because that's another, I, I saw the, the version they did of the birthday party uh, very recently uh, with Zoe Wanamaker and it was very funny. But I've seen it where you can see they've got rid of all the... I mean, one of the opening lines, a man gets home and his wife just goes, uh, uh, breakfast, I've made you cornflakes. Are they not? And I've made you cornflakes to me immediately. Funny. But you sometimes see it and people you can see it directed to go, breakfast, I've made you cornflakes. I wonder what they mean by cornflakes. They mean fucking cornflakes. You know, and it's just... <laughs> So who do you have certain authors that you really, you know, you know, those books that every time you see them, like in a charity shop, a secondhand shop, you think I've got to buy that and I need to pass this on. Those authors that sometimes are perhaps overlooked and, and all people might think aren't for them. Pinterest pause. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking about Muriel Spark earlier. I'm a huge fan of Muriel Spark. It's in her centenary year and Edinburgh's doing finally doing well by her we've had we've had various events and named streets after and all this kind of stuff if ever i see a miss jean brody or a girl's a slender means or the driver's seat in a shop i'll buy it and just give it to somebody or leave it on a park bench hoping that more people will start to read and enjoy muriel spark and uh, i only ever met her once met her once at the edinburgh book festival the year before two years before she died she was very frail she bet she got up on stage and she read from miss jean brody which was what everybody wanted and Alan Taylor, who was interviewing, said afterwards, he said, I spoke to her before and she said, I think I'll read some poetry. And he went, Muriel, you can't read poetry. You're in Edinburgh. You've got to read from Jean Brodie. And, she, and he persuaded her to do it, which was, and the hair went up on the arms. And there was a party for her afterwards. And I had my two big bags of first editions with me that I'd been collecting since I was a student. And, uh, but she was knackered. She was tired and she wasn't very well in that. So I just plucked a Jean Brodie first edition. Girlfriend of the time, now my wife, Miranda, bought it for me at a book fair in Edinburgh. Eight quid she paid for it. Very steep at the time. And I got to, and she signed up for me, which was just perfect. And, and there was a, a photographer got a nice photograph of us as well. And you know, the thing about never meet your heroes, because, you know, you go, well, all the times I wish I had met my heroes, and I never did because I was a bit embarrassed or I thought they would just let me down. And um, uh, which, I'm just name dropping like fuck today, but never mind. Um, <laughs> I, to me, another one, because I, I moved to London. I did my PhD in Edinburgh on Muriel Spark, but I never finished it. I was writing books. 
And then we got married, moved to London, and uh, I, I went to an event that Martin Amos was doing in a bookshop in London. And I'm kind of browsing the books, waiting for Martin to arrive. And he arrives, and he sort of smiles and walks towards me. And I thought, yeah, of course he's found out another, a new novelist is in town. I did one book published by this stage, so the hands out. He walks right past me to someone else, you know. And, you know, it wasn't like that. And I thought, he's a bit standoffish. I'm not, you know. But then he came to Edinburgh just a few years ago. And he was at the Queen's Hall, and some mates and I were at it. And there was a huge signing queue afterwards, and everybody's in the bar at the Queen's Hall. But there's a wee mezzanine, and you can sit up there. And so me and my mates just thought, fuck it, bottle of wine, sit up there, drink, wait for the queue to go. And his publicist came upstairs and said, oh, Martin has seen you, and he's, he's very jealous that you're sitting there with your bottle of wine. Can he join you after the event is finished? And I went, yeah, fine. So he actually came up, sat with us, and uh, signed our books at the table while enjoying a few glasses of wine. Meantime, the same Alan Taylor, who interviewed Muriel Spark on stage, who had been interviewing him, was at the restaurant waiting for Martin to arrive. Last orders, his phone, and he said, oh, yeah, just give me the fish, give me the fish. And it, right, let's have another bottle of wine, lads. I felt really bad for Alan at the end of that, but I got to sit with Martin Amos, and he was fine, and he wanted to talk about video games, darts, football, you name it, anything but his oeuvre. That's good to know because I was I was at Hay once and I got to uh, uh, the station and I was with a friend of mine, Martin White, who I sometimes get to play live accordion while I read out Giant Killer Crabs novels. And, uh, and we went tonight, to the I hope station. I'm going to see you tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sadly no live accordion tonight. If anyone is an accordionist and wants to bang a drum to some Killer Crabs novels tonight, I need you 7.30 to 8.30. I am going to get a tap dancer in quite soon, though, who's absolutely fantastic. Tap dancing to the Giant Killer Crabs novels really does make it very four-dimensional. But uh, <laughs> Ma Martin White yeah. loves Martin Amis. And when you get to the station, it's, uh, it's Hereford Station. Yeah, and yeah, when you yeah. get there, there's loads of authors all waiting for the lift to Hay, right? And Martin White went, oh my God, it's Martin Amis waiting as well. Um, oh God, I can't believe it. And he thought, I better, I, I'm going to break the ice. And he just went up to him and went, hello, my name's Martin too. And it didn't go very well. So um, <laughs> it was just wonderful. Apologies for the interruption, just to explain the weird non sequitur that's about to happen as Ian starts talking about uh, naming characters in books after real people. Just trust me when I say it would make so much more sense if we didn't just have to cut out the last five minutes of the recording, uh, which might be considered a bit libelous by some. But I think that's a wee bit... I mean, crime writers would never put people thinly disguised in their books, except we do it all the time. So yeah. you do... You, all you, the time. There are moments where... Because I've always wondered about so many... You know, talking to Neil Gaiman yesterday and, and a lot of the authors we talked to on Bookshams, there are moments of catharsis. There are moments where acts are committed. It's, it's the great line from John Waters, you know, Pink Flamingos and Hairspray, where he would go into prisons in Baltimore and he would lecture people who had committed terrible, terrible crimes. And he said, my trick was I committed all my crimes on celluloid. That's what you should have... It was too late for them now. They were in for life, you know. But he said, you know, that's what I do. I, I had the imagination comes there and I go, get the cameras and we'll... And so do let you, me have... give you... Let me give you a great example of that. And she won't mind me telling us because she's dead now. Um... <laughs> friend of mine, the crime writing community is a very small community, even worldwide, it's quite a small community. We all know each other, we all get to know each other because we all get invited to the same gigs and festivals and we're on the same panels. And we're the kids from the wrong side of the tracks, we're not going to win the Booker Prize or the Pulitzer, so fuck you, we're going to help each other out as best as possible. Um, there was a Canadian crime writer and she was also a sports journalist. She was the first female baseball journalist in, in Canada. And um, she was dating a baseball player, and he dumped her unceremoniously uh, in a really horrible way. So she wrote to all her crime-writing friends around the world and said his name's 
mm. have something horrible happen to him in your next book. And she waited six months, a year, a year and a half, two years until we'd all written our next books, we'd all published our next books, we sent them to her. She got this huge packing crate, put little post-it notes in the books at the pages in which had his head chopped off, his cock chopped off. <laughs> uh, Val McDermott stuck a broken bottle up his arse. Uh, I made him an impotent gorilla at Edinburgh Zoo. Uh, and, and she just sent him the box. That is revenge. <laughs> and that is why you must never make an enemy of a crime writer. <laughs> Would you, are the moments, where, say when you're, you're, you're writing moments of, of, of savagery, does it ever require a, a, a specific mood? Are there certain points where you feel, oh, do you know what, today is not, because you, 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 you seem to be a very methodical writer. You're, you're a bit, you know, you, it feels it's like... It's a canavite. Well, almost like kind of a Graham Greene thing where you know that I, I know you don't do it quite like that but that bit where Graham Greene would sit down and he would just you know he would just write I think with him it was he would write a thousand words a day and the moment he'd done that he'd go now I could do anything I, I, else I want this day but you do seem to uh have have a system in the way that Nick Cave used to you know sit down and just go I go in at nine in the morning I start writing lyrics and then I he doesn't do this anymore but he used to do that mm. and then knock off at five mm. um but do you find there's certain things where you go today is not the day that I am able to write about this particular act or idea? I, d I don't know. I mean, my books aren't as visceral as some. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm very lucky that I, I deal with police detectives and police detectives arrive after the act of violence has happened. So I don't feel the need to look at things from the serial killer's point of view or be there when the act has taken place. It happens, it's the aftermath. It's what I'm interested in. Um, and so I'm lucky from that perspective. I've also had an editor early on, and I, one of the re early Rebus novels was a serial killer novel, and he said, oh, Ian, this is kind of a bit graphic and just, just don't be quite as graphic in your serial killer novel. And I went, really? Um, so I kind of learned from him. Um, they, I mean, you know, I, and I don't, I, I don't write 3,000 words a day or, or 1,000 words a day. I mean, some days are good, some days are bad, some days are indifferent. Great days can start at 8 o'clock at night and you've been trying since 9 in the morning. I do try and write every day if I'm writing a novel. But then a novel takes me maybe three months maximum to write, so the rest of the year, hey ho, I'm a, I'm 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 an incredibly lazy, hard-working writer, I think, because I do a book a year, but I do it in three months, and the rest of the year I put my feet, I don't quite put my feet up, but um, but I'm not writing all the time. I mean, there are writing machines. Sandy McCall Smith, my next door neighbour, but one is a machine. He, he if he's not writing, he's not alive. He's on trains, planes, automobiles. He's on holiday. I mean, he comes back from holiday having written a book, you know. Um, and you go, why? I mean, you know, he's like, a, he's like a narrative machine. And I'm finding it, as I get older, I'm finding it harder. I used to write two books a year because I wasn't making any money from it. So it was a necessity, a financial necessity with kids that I had to write two books a year. And I'm now doing a book every two years. And even then, I'm finding it quite hard to get the next plot, to get the next theme that I'm interested in exploring. So I think maybe the stories are finite. I mean, I think maybe there are a finite number of stories. And hopefully, as a writer, you know when it's time to say, that's it, I'm done. You know, I'm not going to keep ringing out stuff that isn't I'm not passionate about because I've got a contract or whatever I've got readers that are really desperate for the next book um, and there are things I've done in the past because crime fiction does deal with violence of course it deals with horrible people and horrible things happening to us and the central tenet of all crime fiction is why do we human beings continue to do terrible things to each other different cultures different times in history we just keep doing it why um, that's at the heart of all crime fiction, I think, and, and a myriad responses and answers to that. But there was one book about halfway through the Rebus series, and it was about a paedophile. Paedophile who's been released, having served his sentence, released into the community, the community don't know who he is. 
Um, and it was based on a true story that happened in Stirling, the community in Stirling in Raplock Estate. If anybody knows Raplock Estate, pretty hardcore um, place. And they found out and they chased him out. And in my book, he didn't get chased out, he got killed, he got murdered. But the, for the paedophile sections, I was going to originally write in the first person. And I had one young kid at the time, second one on the way, and I thought, can't do it. I tried it, I thought, I just, I just don't want to be inside your head. So that was a thing where I thought, if I was a better writer, if I was a more serious writer, I would maybe have thought, no, Ian, it's horrible, but you've got to do it. I'll give you a second example of that. I did a series on evil years ago for Channel 4, uh, Ian Rankin's Evil Thoughts. I think it might be online, but I'm not 100% sure. And as part of that process, and I didn't know this, the producer, director, wrote to um, Ian Brady's mum and said, can we interview you about what it's like to have a serial killer in the family? She passed that on to Brady, and Brady got back to him direct and said, no, no, Mr. Rankin doesn't talk to my mum, Mr. Rankin talks to me. And so the director got very excited. He said, this is going to be amazing, Ian. I went, no, it's not, because I'm not going to fucking do it. Because I'd read a book that Brady wrote that almost nobody's read. It was never published in the UK, it wasn't allowed to be published in the UK, um, called The Gates of Janus, which was about killers. They're a higher life form than us. They are the, they're the most exceptional hunter-gatherers in existence. And I just thought, it's a, that was the ugliest book I'd ever read, and I would gladly see it burn. In fact, I think I did destroy it, um, having bought it from Waterstones or something. I forget where I got it. It was like a boot, it wasn't a bootleg, but it was like an uh, American edition. But I, I it's still know. out there, I think. Cause I, uh, Colin it? Wilson might have been involved in it, because obviously Colin really? Wilson was always fascinating. Yeah, he was fascinating. It's one of those books that I occasionally see someone write about, and I think I never... I just, but, I mean, the, yeah. thing, the thing I'm trying to say is I was, there were things where I go, no, I don't want to go there. Mm. Because once he gets inside your head, he's not coming out again. Yeah. You know? And I just thought, I don't want that. I don't want him inside my head from now until I die. In terms of fiction, are the, what, what books are, are the ones that you have found certain things that you find particularly disturbing? Is there any, any, again, that moment where for a while you can sometimes think, I wish I hadn't read that. I wish that hadn't gone into my mind. And then more often than not, I think, you know, those bits will disappear, but there can be. I mean, things I, like yeah, that film, the Serbian film. Do you ever know about the Serbian film? Yeah, yeah, I mean, films, film? I think films yeah. are different. I mean, if, I think films are different. I mean, novels uh, require uh, an intellectual um, uh, level of, of, of commerce. There's a kind of connection between you and the narrative voice. Films are kind of just slapped at you. It's kind of visual images just thrown at you. Um, and they can, you know, they're tricking you into having a, a reaction, an emotional reaction. It takes, takes quite a... I mean, I read American Psycho, and it didn't really do anything for me. Um, you saw the film, you thought, this is horrible. Um, but reading the book, I just thought, this is a wee bit boring. You know, I didn't think it was that well written. Uh, Clockwork Orange. When I was a kid, I'm much older than you. I mean, Clockwork Orange, the book, was being passed around almost surreptitiously in my high school when I was like 13, 14. The film came out when I was 13, 14, and disappeared very quickly because Kubrick didn't like the copycat violence that appeared to be happening in the back of it. It wasn't banned, he just withdrew it. Um, but you could see it in France. So when I moved to France, 1990, it was showing in a cinema near me. I thought, I'll go along and see this film. And it was pretty horrible. And I didn't remember the book being horrible because the book had this fantastic literary style. It was full of extraordinary experiments with language. He was using a made-up language, some bits of Russian, some bits from here. Um, so it was, it was properly literary. And the structure, it was properly, properly literary. And of course, the film just did away with that and just went for a straightforward narrative arc. And something was lost in the process. And it's, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, tr it's true that 
I, I, think, I still think a novel is an extraordinary act of communi communication uh, between individuals in a way that a film doesn't have the same, it doesn't feel the same to me. Film does seem, and, and television does often seem simplified. We were talking about this the, the, the other day, about the fact that I, I watched one of the episodes of, uh, of, of Rebus, which I think had the title Noughts and Crosses, which I've read, and I went, hang on a minute, this had about one idea, and they were trying to cover a, a novel in, how long was it? You said it's... it's 45 minutes. 45 well, minutes, yeah. and that seemed to be... Yeah. It's, yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. That <clears throat> can you think of any novels where you go, the film itself has because quite often it's it's not great ones can yeah, be turned yeah, into yeah. quite good films. Yeah, the, the famous example I suppose would be uh, um, what's the, the Clint Eastwood one about the Bridges of Madison County, which was not seen as a, a great work of literature, but which he took something that was seen as reasonably pulpy and he's considered to be you know one of uh, his you know. Well, again, I'm much older than you. I mean, the one that jumps up at me, at me would be The Godfather. The, Good, the Godfather is an extraordinary work of cinema, but it's a pretty pulpy novel, you know? I mean, it is a pretty pulpy novel, and, and, uh, and it's written to be a bestseller. It's almost like a machine, a narrative machine. Um, and in that case, I think the film is better than the book. And there's a few cases like that. Maybe Jaws might be one, I don't know. Uh, the Exorcist might be one, I don't know. It's been a while since I've read those books. Maybe I should revisit them. Um, but mostly, I think, when I see a film, and a film destroys it, you cannot read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, having seen the film, and not see Jack Nicholson. And yet, um, McMur McMurty, whatever, McMurphy in the, in the book is a very different character. He's got, a, he's got a red hair and a ponytail. He's physically not like Jack Nicholson. And it's, it's the same with The Godfather. Can you imagine trying to read The Godfather now and not see those actors in those roles? And that's why I, won't, I, wouldn't, I would never, and I've, I mean, I've said it many times, I will not watch an episode of Rebus. Because I don't want actors, ticks and mannerisms and vocal um, delivery to get in the way of what's already in my head for these characters. And having said that, Rebus is going to be on the stage uh, next month, October in Edinburgh, but it's going to be on the stage next month, uh, starts in Birmingham in September. And I will go along to that. I think, in a way, I think I'm, I'm really intrigued to see Rebus in three dimensions, to see actually have that visceral live theatre event in a way that watching it on TV is it kind of flits across the screen and there's adverts coming every 15 minutes just doesn't do it for me. And when he did Rebus originally, did it as two hours on ITV, which is an hour and 40 minutes with ads. An hour and 40 minutes is 100 pages. A script is a page a minute. And 100 pages for a 300-page novel, yeah, maybe okay. But when he then took it down to four, one hour, which is 45 minutes plus ads, that was a 45-page script. So all I did was take Knots and Crosses, the title of the first book, and then the scriptwriter said, okay, what plot can we possibly have that will fill 45 minutes? Um, they couldn't do the book. Of course they couldn't do the book. And so eventually I gave up and said, look, give me the rights back. And I got the rights back. And there's a TV um, production company now trying to do it over six or eight or ten hours per book. That's it. It's like with, with Alan Moore with his uh, comic books where he says, why do I want it to be turn, turned into a film? People go, well, we're going to make it cinematic. And he went, I wrote it cinematically. So I yeah, don't yeah. want but, a I mean, I'm not and... precious like that. And, I'm, I'm, and actually, I think Watchmen is a good film. I like Watchmen, especially the first couple of minutes. The first few minutes are brilliant. Um, but I mean, I'll, you know, in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I remember going to see, I'm going to drop another name now. Uh, I was invited in, uh, to, be, to, to ghostwrite Sean Connery's autobiography. So his publisher said, he's coming up to Edinburgh during the festival. This was quite a few years ago. He's coming up to Edinburgh during the festival. Do you want to meet him one-on-one -on -one and just discuss it? I went, yep. <laughs> uh, and it was a house in Murrayfield. It was actually David Murray's house. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, and, and so Sean, a wee bit tight, not going to pay for a hotel room, I'll stay with somebody else. 
And um, I turned up at the door, and there's Sean. He said, we've got some sandwiches here. And, uh, and you know, I'd, I'd, but I'd, got, I'd desperately gone around the house saying, shit, I better, get, I better get a fucking DVD or something. For, I'm going to get something for Sean Connery to sign. I've never met him. I might never meet him again. And I, I oh, that'll do. And it was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And, and he just he exploded. He said, the worst film ever made. Um, destroyed me. The director was a fucking madman. He said, I'll never make another movie. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, great. Can you sign it anyway? So he actually he did. He did sign it. I've probably got the only copy of that film in existence that is signed by Sean Connery. I, uh, what I want to talk was a little bit about music, actually, and, and music books. Because there was a lovely moment the other day. Uh, Ian very kindly puts me up uh, when I come and do the Fringe Festival. And I got back to his house, and I'd been down the Oxfam in Morningside, and I'd found a, uh, a kind of hardback boxed copy of Nick Cave's uh, sick The bag, Sick Bag sick Songs. Uh, sick Bag Song. And I got in and went to the kitchen. He went, where'd you get that from? And I went, the Oxfam Morningside. He said, I've only just donated that. So I've been bringing... <laughs> I've basically been bringing back books that Ian's been getting rid of. He said, just look at the boxes in the front room. It will save a lot of time. Um, but uh, as someone who is known for their, you know, in, in, incredible love of music, do you have, uh, who do you feel has made uh, a good transition from their ability as a, as a lyricist or as a musician to being able to write novels or short stories? Well, I mean, I do think Bunny Monroe's a great novel, which is Nick Cave. Um, sick bag notes I didn't really get. Um, uh, Willie Vlotten, I'm told, is a really good writer, but I've not read him yet. Um, kind of hard to comment. Not many, not many have done it well. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to think of many uh, musicians who've written good novels. Um, have you not read Morris's The List of the Lost? <laughs> it's a fucking... Try, has anyone I'd read it? Come on. It's fucking amazing. It is so bizarre that it exists. And, and I, I, I once said, I said, well, maybe if he'd had an editor and someone went, he did. And it's just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a really hard book to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? But it's, I mean, it's a reason why, why, why lyricists become lyricists. It's what they do. It's how they see the world. It's how they structure their thoughts. And, it's, and the novelists become novelists because we get as many words as we need. I'm in awe of poets who can say in a couplet what it takes me 300 pages to say, you know? They can just distill it. And great songwriters can do the same thing. And, you know, hugely jealous of Nick Cave because it seems he's got the ability to do both. He can write a novel that works and he can also write a song lyric that works. But, no, I mean, there's been some great nonfiction books. I mean, um, Dylan's nonfiction book was fantastic, Chronicles. Uh, there's been plenty of those. Uh, it's just about to be re-released. Re Ian Hunter from Mott the Hoople. Diary of a Rock and Roll Star, which again, when I was about 12 or 13, we were passing around going, Jesus Christ, he walks into the toilets and Iggy Pop's got a syringe hanging out of his cock. And they were all going, <laughs> that's what rock and roll is, you know. And now you go backstage at a gig. We both have this kind of, we do occasionally get backstage at gigs and it's peppermint tea and hummus <laughs> and bottles of water. And you're going, all right, you sussed it now. You, you guys paying for the rider, you know that. Would, would you like to... Uh, I, I was thinking about things like I Was Dora Suarez, which was the uh, yeah, adaptation Raymond. of yeah, yeah. Uh, Derek Raymond. With, done, on, was, done on music. With music. Yeah, with yeah, Gallon yeah, Drunk. Yeah. And I wondered how much... Do you, uh, as someone where, where music is so much part of the, uh, of, of the, of the Rebus novels, are, are there more things you would like to do in terms of exploring the ability to mix some form of fiction with music as well? It's happening all the time. I mean, because, you know, to you know, whenever novelists and musicians and, and actors and poets and artists, everybody meet, 
we're all jealous of each other. We would all, you know, all the writers would rather be rock stars, all the rock stars would rather be artists, all the artists would rather be actors, all the actors would rather be poets. It just goes around like that, and you end up sort of working together or meeting together and having ideas and going, we should do something together. And I mean, you know that I've been very lucky um, that I've, uh, Tim Burgess from The Charlatans uh, became, I became friends with him and I've interviewed him at the book festival um, a couple of times. And then, you know, he, he said to me, would you do a short story? We'll, we'll do a 12-inch single and we'll release it for, we'll, we'll give it to Oxfam and Oxfam can sell it. And I did a short story about a, a, a roadie and an encounter at a gig and stuff. And then uh, uh, Tim and his, his partner did some music for the B-side. And that was a lovely thing to do, a 12-inch single that came out, Oxfam had it for a while. And then he said to me just recently, he said, do you, want to, uh, do you want to do some stuff for me to link two tracks in the next album? And I went, yeah. And he was up here playing New Year, not last New Year, but one before, I think. And he's, he said, I went to his room and he said, tell me, and his kid was in the corner. He said, just read your wee short story into this bloody iPhone. Next thing I know, it's on the album. You know, and, and, and it sort of segues two tracks. And it's a little futuristic story about a private eye and... It's basically Terminator with a private eye. But it kind of links the two tracks quite nicely, I think. Um, and so that stuff happens a lot. Dora Suarez is interesting. This is a novel by a guy called... Uh, well, Derek Raymond wasn't his real name. His real name was Robin Cook. But he called himself Derek Raymond because there already was a thriller writer from Edinburgh called Robin Cook. He wrote Coma, didn't he? Did he write Coma, Robin uh, The other Robin Cook yeah, did, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, was, yeah. he was a doctor. Is a doctor? I don't know. He was a doctor. Um, but Derek Raymond was this weird... <laughs> I met him a few times in Soho in London uh, when I was living there. Lovely guy, but can he, you looked into his eyes and thought, you've seen shit I don't want to see. The only other person I've had that from, I'm going to name drop again, yeah. uh, was, was the, the, literally the 30 seconds I met um, Keith Richards. And pleasant enough guy, but he just looked in the eyes and he thought, fuck. <laughs> you know, really, honestly. And Derek Raymond had that same blue-eyed intensity, that intensity. I've seen stuff you people wouldn't believe. Yeah. You know? Um, but a lovely guy. Uh, and, and, but he did this book called I'm, I, I Was Dora Suarez, which is one of the hardest reads. It's such an extraordinary, extreme crime novel, but it's a brilliant crime novel. Is that the one that I'm trying to remember? Is that the one that actually opens with someone's skull being crushed by the weight of a clock? Yes. Yeah. Someone it breaks re- the old, very visceral. Old yeah, lady's novel. house and the yeah. crusher. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then, I mean, that's actually quite light compared to what happens later yeah. with a gerbil. Um, See, I love things. I, I love it when someone though introduces. There was a, someone that we've had on, on bookshelves before. Is a, 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 a wonderful writer and screenwriter and director, an artist, Philip Ridley. And uh, the opening of his film, The Reflecting Skin, has some children. I don't know if you've ever seen it. They, they, uh, a little boy finds uh, a, a toad and he's bringing it through the field. And it's an enormous toad and it's beautiful. And his friends will go, oh, wow, what a beautiful toad. And then one of them goes, it's my turn. No, it's my turn. And he goes, I found it. It's my turn. And they stick a straw up its ass. And then this boy, it's not obviously in the field. It's not real. He inflates this, this, this toad and they place it in the middle of a path. And then Lindsay Duncan is walking walking down the path and she just sees this toad there bloated and then they get a catapult and they fire it and the whole thing goes and just explodes. And one of his friends went, right, just so you know, two thirds of the people watching your film will leave after that scene. But the one third who stay, they'll fucking love it. And I just think, you know, that that kind of thing where you go, right, we're not, you know what we're offering, and yeah, yeah. This well, I mean, I, I think I mean he was uh, as a writer. I think he he was as close as as we get to kind of you know um, Jacobean tragedy. It was a skull beneath the skin. Uh, I mean, he really went he really went for it. 
And I mean, Dora Suarez is set mostly in Soho and it's got this unnamed copy's books. But this band, Gallon Drunk, were such big fans, they decided to put it to music. And, and I've got the CD somewhere in the house. Um, it's a hard listen. I mean, I listened to it once probably and thought never again. I haven't read the book a couple of times. Um, I did choose the book. I was, you know, there was a thing about, I think it was John Connolly, the Irish writer, who needed plan, people writing about crime novels people should know better. And I chose that and wrote about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think crime fiction, that's one of the things I like about crime fiction. It can do everything. It can be Mama Ramotswe and Derek Raymond. You know what I mean? It's a very Catholic church. It's a very broad church. Hence the title of the TV show, I think. I mean, I don't know. But, um, but it is, you know, so it's got room for all of this stuff. Um, and it's really saying to us, look, look we're fucked up. We're, we're, the human race is pretty screwed. And we keep making mistakes. And why do we keep making mistakes? And can we do anything about it? And one of the interesting things is that when you've got oppression or you've got a war or, or, or strife, you don't need the crime fiction. The crime fiction comes afterwards. So there's an explosion, if you'll pardon the expression, in crime fiction from Ireland to try and explain what just happened. But it only started after the peace. Uh, in Africa now, there's all kinds of crime, really interesting crime writers coming out of Africa. It's just starting in India. People are starting to write in India. And they're going, we're using the crime novel as a way of looking at the problems we've got in society because it's absolutely perfect for that. And the detective, if that's who you're using as your main character, has an access all areas pass so they can be talking to the politicians and the bureaucrats and the people who run the companies, but also talking to the dispossessed, the disenfranchised. And, the, and you can, so you get that lovely layering effect with one character that is very hard to do without it. I mean, a journalist can do it, I suppose, to a certain extent. But I like that. That's why I decided a detective was perfect for me to look at Edinburgh, because you can look at Edinburgh from top to bottom. The, the, you know, the politicians can be dodgy, the people running the corporations can be dodgy, um, the, the junkies and the prostitutes can be dodgy, and Rebus has access to all of them. And he moves between those worlds. And I love that. And crime fiction at its best does that. People like Elroy scratching away at the surface of, of Hollywood and Los Angeles, as Chandler and others did before him. Um, and if I want to know about any country or culture in the world, I always go to the crime fiction. Got the crime fiction. You'll find out what areas to avoid, where you might get a decent meal. Uh, you'll find out about the politics, the culture, the social issues they've got. You'll find all of that in the crime novel. So hopefully I've sold it a wee bit. <laughs> I, I Otherwise, I'm not doing my job properly. Mentioning Edinburgh, I was thinking of, uh, I, was, I was looking again at the strange case of Doc Jack and Miss Hyde's Robbie Robert Louis Stevenson seems to be, you know, in terms of, I, I want to talk about someone who's very, who's very well known, but at the same time, an enormous amount of his work is not known or not out there anymore. Obviously, there's, you know, there's Kidnapped and there's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But, uh, and I know that you have an interest as well, again, in the way that he, he was able to use the city and go beyond that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's in a, is that your phone? It could yeah. be your agent. No, it's uh, not. It's actually me. So it, it, it's a phone going, I don't trust my ability to end things at the correct time. Yeah, all right, five, minutes right, five minutes left. Five minutes left. All right, in five minutes, Robert Louis Stevenson. Okay. Um, no, he's, he's, he's an extraordinary writer, but he's, um, he left Edinburgh. He left Scotland, and, I, and, and Scots didn't like that. So, you know, Waverley Station is named after Sir Walter Scott's uh, first book. The Scott Monument in Princess Street Garden, biggest monument in the Western world to a writer. Scott stayed. We like that. Stevenson left, Spark left, various other writers have left. We don't like that so much. So they don't get nearly as much in the way of, um, of things named after them until fairly recently. Um, but Stevenson is a really interesting character because he, you know, he was a sickly child. He was living in, in Harriet Row in Edinburgh. His family were rational. They were scientists. Well, they weren't scientists, but they were 
rational people who saw the world in a rational way. They designed lighthouses and stuff. He was going to be a lawyer. But he was attracted to the darker side of life, the more kind of visceral side of life. And as a young man, he would tiptoe down the stairs and up to the old town, which was full of vagabonds and prostitutes and poets and drunks and all the rest of it. And so he was always attracted to that side of life. But as a sickly child, two things had happened. One, he would look out of his window into Queen Street Gardens and see this little pond with a little island in the middle, Treasure Island. Another one was he had a wardrobe that is now in the Writers Museum in Edinburgh. And his nursemaid, Cummy, would tell him the story of the guy who made that wardrobe, Deacon William Brodie, Deacon Brodie's pub up at the Royal Mile. Um, gentleman by day, housebreaker by night. He had a gang, he'd break into your house and he could break in easily because he'd made the keys. Uh, was eventually caught and hanged on a scaffold that he had built. And Cummy would tell Robert Louis Stevenson a story of this guy who was good and evil in the same person, a member of the establishment society, but also a kind of bag, you know, a bad man. And I think both of those, that island and that, stuck with Stevenson throughout, kind of hardwired so that eventually these stories would come out. These stories that kind of sat and bubbled and bubbled away inside them came out as Treasure Island and Jekyll and Hyde. And Jekyll and Hyde begat all sorts of things, including Muriel Sparks' Miss Jean Brodie, because Miss Jean Brodie says she's descended from Deacon William Brodie. She doesn't tell the girls that Brodie did terrible things. She said he was a respectable member of society and a craftsman. But Miss Jean Brodie is descended from Deacon William Brodie, and she also is that doppelganger. She's that good and evil contained in the same person. We're never sure if she's the hero or the villain of that story. And Scottish literature is full of these uh, doppelgangers. And there's a lovely, there's a lovely phrase that you will, you will have heard before, possibly the Caledonian anti-syzygy. A lot of points at Scrabble. And it's, um, and it's basically being where extremes meet, is McDermott's phrase for it, being where extremes meet. And there's a lot in Scottish fiction of, of doppelgangers and extremes clashing. You've got it in, in uh, Justified Sinner, Confession of a Justified Sinner, which was another big influence on, on, on Jekyll and Hyde, which is about a young guy who's, who's very religious. He meets a charismatic stranger who persuades him he's going to go to heaven no matter what he does on earth, so he might as well start killing people, which is almost like a handbook for, for terrorists. You know, you're going to go and meet all these virgins when you get up there. You might as well have some fun on earth while you're down here. And, um, and that was a big influence. And this guy, you're never sure if this charismatic stranger is the devil or a figment of his imagination. Um, it's an extraordinary book, really hard book to read, but an extraordinary book, and I think had a big effect on Jekyll and Hyde, as did lots of other things. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde was partly based on a, um, a, a, a real-life um, Scottish uh, doctor who lived in Leicester Square and was consorting with body snatchers because he wanted to carry out experiments. And his wife would be inviting Haydn round for, come on, Haydn, Joseph Haydn, come and have dinner with us. And, um, and this guy was in the back room with, with fucking bodies that had just been dug up and sold to him. He was an extraordinary guy. And the Hunterian Museum in London is, is his collection of weird stuff. The Hunterian Museum in Glasgow is his brother, who was also a doctor and also collected stuff. So these two hunters are really interesting characters. And um, all of that is just, it's a kind of big, Scottish, I mean, you know, crime fiction is not taken seriously. It is genre fiction. It is made to sell. Nobody props us up. We don't win the Booker Prize. We don't get teaching gigs. We have to make money. We have to sell books. So it's commercial fiction. But it's a lot you can do in the crime novel. And I didn't come to the crime novel as a fan of the crime novel. I came to the crime novel because I thought there are really interesting things I can do with this. And this is the best possible way of me saying things about the world I live in. And so far, it's worked out okay. Uh, Ian Rankin, thank you very much. Thank you.
Uh, book shambles you can find with, with both Josie and myself as well. And lots of guests we've, we've done if you want to support us via Patreon. Uh, and uh, also, who have we got? Who's tomorrow, Trent? Oh, Kerry Pritchard and George Jagger is a DIY chef and he's going to be talking about his favourite cookbooks. And Kerry does that fantastic, uh, what's it called? All, all uh, Killer, No Filler, uh, which has become a huge podcast. He's touring in America because uh, uh, she's uh, obsessed with serial killers. So you may well enjoy that too. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for coming down. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening, and as you've no doubt already worked out, we're releasing these Edinburgh Fringe episodes in a different order to those in which we recorded them. So the George Egg and Kerry Pritchard McLean episode Robin just mentioned is already out, as is Ian's new book, the latest entry in the best-selling Rebus series, Inner House of Lies is the new one. Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now too. Have a great week. We will see you with a new episode next week or perhaps at the Manchester Science Festival on Monday, October 22nd. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 